0: Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here with Sean O'Dowd. Sean, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks so much for having
1: me. Excited to be here.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, Sean, why don't you tell our listeners, first of all, who you are and where you're from?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I'm Sean, uh, located in Chicago with my wife and uh, our nine-year-old, excuse me, nine-month-old son. I have spent a lot of time in the real estate space, uh, took agent licensing courses, actually, as soon as I turned 18 spent time as a um, real estate investor. Still, I am a real estate investor specifically on the multifamily side of things. And now I own a transaction coordination business as well.
0: Awesome. And w- we will definitely dive into the, the transaction coordination part, which is a very important aspect of high-performing teams. And you have an interesting perspective on that, but You know, first, I kind of want to dive into your experience in consulting because I I think it's Mm -hmm. really relevant to now the business that you have today and thinking strategically about how to operate high performing businesses. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience in college, how that then evolved into consulting for Fortune 500 companies?
1: Yeah, for sure. So excited to talk about that. Um, so I, uh, college experience was slightly different for me. So I went to Penn, but technically Wharton's undergrad program. So Wharton's one of the top business schools in the country. They have an undergraduate program. It's relatively small, but the unique thing about that is you're actually taking classes as an undergrad with MBA students. So my mm-hmm. friends in college were actually 30 year olds who had families, kids, and had worked for a couple of years really awesome experience, very different than I the standard Frat Party College experience, I guess. But through them, I got to learn about consulting, what management consulting could be. A couple of really good friends almost talked me into it and said, hey, this is a really fantastic way to start your career just because you can start learning so much and, and get a lot of exposure very quickly. So I graduated, ended up working for a firm called Boston Consulting Group. Uh, it's one of the like the three firms typically called MVB. And I worked in their Chicago office for a couple of years. Most important part there was actually I met my wife while working at PCG. But from a work perspective, it was fantastic because all of my clients that I was working with were Fortune 500s, but it was also the leadership in the Fortune 500s. So I got to be 22, 23 years old in the room with with people making billion-dollar decisions on um, buying businesses, selling businesses, pivoting their businesses, new investments, new divestitures, all sorts of really high level conversations and thought processes and just getting exposure to how they think about making serious business decisions and how they think about running their business in the most effective possible way possible.
0: Wow. That must have been a challenge to be, you know, 22, 23 years old, right out of college and trying to command respect in a room with titans of industry, you know, massive C-suite level business owners and decision makers. So in that process, you know, how are you able to guide them? What are some of the key insights where you're able to probably break through some of their assumptions about your age or your experience, and then actually offer them value to where they're like, "Wow, this this kid knows what he's talking about." You know, what what were some of those key insights?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so my first meeting ever with BCG was with the CEO of a well-known company. I'd actually seen him on CNBC like two or three weeks prior. Um, and now I'm sitting two feet away from him, pre-COVID, of course, talking with him about potential acquisition decision um, that they didn't end up making. And, you know, at one point I jumped in on the meeting, he made a claim about a benefit of the, the company that they might acquire. And I jumped in, it's like, actually, no, there's a different way to think about it, and here's why. And it felt natural and organic to do in the meeting. But afterwards, I walked down, it's like, what just happened? Like, that's really weird that I jumped in there. And I think the key aspect here is, just the amount of preparation and the work that you can do ahead of time. I was getting up at five in the morning every single morning learning about this potential acquisition company that they might be looking into, um, learning about why this deal might make sense for them, why it won't. And yeah, this guy's a very well-known CEO and he knows his business cold, but I made sure in that room there was one thing that nobody in that room knew more about than I did and that was that specific business. Mm. And I think that's the real key is always be the expert in the room at one thing that nobody else in the room is an expert on. And then that gives you confidence because you can rely on that. Is hey, no matter what happens, if this topic comes up, I'm here to answer that question and I know I got it.
0: Got it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You're able to offer value in an area where he needed that help. He needed that, those optics or that insight. That does make sense. So you were doing consulting for BCG. Mm-hmm. After that, after working with tons of, billion-dollar companies, multi-billion-dollar companies. Mm-hmm. Then you started your own consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And then after that, now you have started with, I'm sure, many other businesses and things in between. <laughs> <laughs> and that, then you started the transaction coordinator company. So, you know, what types of, of uh, preparation or, or things that you learned along the way have have become the mold that this transaction coordinator company was was forged from?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question. And I think the most interesting thing when you're working with these big companies that started coming to play is a lot of the uh, assumptions that people have about businesses and starting businesses and running businesses aren't actually true. What I mean by that is you tell someone you're starting a company and the first question anybody asks you is, do you know how to code? Like that's not actually the most important driving factor in being able to start a business. There's 70 million businesses in the United States. Of those 70 million businesses, a very, very small percentage of them are technologically based. So when you're working with these, these large companies, a lot of the work they do is not technologically related. It's, it's focused on uh, adding value from one group and other people to the other. At the end of the day, that's all business is. It's a one group of people, employees, trying to add value to another group of people, customers. So when you break it down on that level, as a consultant first, you're joining the group of people that's trying to add value to the customers. And and then when you try to start your own business, you're also trying to add value to a group of customers. So thinking about it from like the most basic level of, hey, I'm part of one group and I'm trying to add value to another, that was the biggest learning for me. And that allows to focus on like, hey, what are some opportunities that I can start adding value to people in today immediately without needing to raise $100 million and, and learn how to code something?
0: Okay. So that concept of adding value and you can't get something for nothing. So if you're Mm -hmm. going to start a successful business, you obviously have to be generating more value than you're asking for in return in compensation. And that's really how I've founded my businesses as well, is that Mm -hmm. focus on value, the understanding that, you know, people, you might buy something once and Mm -hmm. get duped into a purchase, but if the value doesn't exceed the cost, you're never going to buy again. So Mm -hmm. especially on a service-based business or a recurring monthly retainer, That value better be exceeding the cost otherwise you're going to have massive churn and your Mm -hmm. business is going to struggle off the starting blocks so that totally makes sense to me and to try and bring it back now full circle for the Mm -hmm. real estate professional listeners out there Mm -hmm. i'm sure they know what transaction coordination is um, but Mm -hmm. why don't you just go into a brief description for those listeners that might not understand the ins and outs of transaction coordination Just go ahead Mm -hmm. and give a brief description of that and then how you're also doing it differently than other local transaction coordinator companies.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the, the high level of transaction coordination is it's actually a job. A transaction coordinator handles everything from the agent for the agents from the time the PSA is signed until the deal actually closes. So that's all of the admin non-revenue generating tasks that an agent might otherwise do, such as confirming earnest money receipts, documenting that for compliance, scheduling inspections, coordinating amongst lenders, attorneys, title companies, uh, and then if you want to get exotic uh, short sale attorneys, 1031, uh, exchange facilitators, and however many different variations of the transaction you might see. The real benefit of of why people hire TCs, though, is to save time. For the agents that work with TCs, typically the number you hear is around 15 hours is how much time they're saving per transaction basis from when a deal goes under contract to when it actually closes. And instead, taking that 15 hours and allocating that to the front end of prospecting or actually working with clients allows an agent to, to spend their time where the, their value is most important with the clients and the, the TC can handle that more admin side of things for them. So that's the business. A fair number of, of brokerages are hiring TCs full-time. Compass, for example, is one of them. My company is Close Concierge. We are an outsourced service, so people can pay a, a flat monthly fee and work with a dedicated transaction coordinator. A couple things that's different about us. For example, the number one that typically comes into play is to our knowledge, we're the only firm that works nights and weekends because that's when real estate happens and that's when agents are working. Um, But Mm. most TCs typically don't. The other differentiation worth mentioning is all of our TCs are full-time employees. They're um, paid more than market salary and, and treated quite well which is actually unique amongst transaction coordination companies that try to outsource or offshore the work. But how that comes into practice for the agents, that means the best TCs want to work with us, um, which means our, our quality ends up being quite good as a result.
0: Got it. And I think most agents, myself included until this, this call, would think, mm-hmm. transaction coordinator, how am I going to find one? I'm probably going to look up on Google, you know, local transaction coordinator, or call a couple friends, see who mm-hmm. they're using locally. And so a big difference is that you're nationwide, you offer Mm -hmm. remote transaction coordinator services, right? That's right. Yep. So in that case, you know, what are the benefits now in the COVID world of of Mm -hmm. having remote work done? Um, You know, you don't have to go through a local company necessarily for these different aspects of the transaction. So Mm -hmm. do you have any ideas of like why that's important or... the idea that they can now look nationwide for services mm-hmm. like this that would typically be done locally. Do you have anything to share there?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and COVID has definitely impacted this. But the largest increase in agents who are interested in working with the transaction coordinator, at least that I've seen over the past, say, six to 12 months, are with agents who are in smaller or more rural locations, so, for example, if we're talking about an agent that's in a, in a more rural location, Wichita, Kansas, for example. I was talking with someone earlier today who's in Wichita. Earlier, they just didn't know about a lot of transaction coordinators that were local. They were a little hesitant on, will I even be able to find somebody local who knows my market? Now that the COVID has made people more, more comfortable with working in the Zoom environment, um, they're now starting to look for a service that's national and be like, hey, I actually feel confident that there's going to be somebody that might not be located in Wichita, but there's somebody who can help and add value to my market, even though I might be a smaller market and might not have a lot of local transaction coordinators to choose from.
0: Got it. And you mentioned you've seen a huge lift in rural markets. So anyone Mm -hmm. out there that's in a rural market, you don't necessarily need to think, oh, this wouldn't work for me. Uh, This could be something that could work, you know, anywhere. So they get a dedicated remote transaction coordinator, They're Mm -hmm. paid super well. They're very competent. They end up being this full-time transaction coordinator for that client. I'm curious because on my side, being a marketing Mm -hmm. agency Mm -hmm. that's focusing on top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers, I get to see, similar to consulting, not Mm -hmm. just the inner workings of one brokerage, Mm -hmm. but I get to see the inner workings of dozens. And I Mm -hmm. start to notice trends of what's working What's not working? Why this particular mm-hmm. client is at 200 million a year in transactions and the other one is stuck at 80. And mm-hmm. so when you start to see multiple different businesses, you can it's pretty natural to have pattern recognition. So my question mm-hmm. to you, you know, what are some of the patterns that you've seen for top performing teams that have been your clients compared to the ones who are, are struggling to uh, maybe even generate enough transactions to keep your transaction coordinator busy?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and absolutely agree with you. You can start to notice some trends and you can see it from the consulting side of things. I'm actually not allowed to buy stock because I consult for companies, but if I could, I know exactly which companies I would and wouldn't buy based off of those trends from consulting. Totally true on the transaction coordination side of things as well. So similarly to you, we gear towards some of the more higher performing agents, but there's, there's two things that really stick out about the agents that are just consistently growing their volume every single year and end up being those top, top agents. Number one the agents who are doing really well put themselves out there constantly, all day, every single day. Lead generation is something they never stop doing. And if they're in the grocery store and they hear, there you go, if they're in the grocery store, they hear someone talking about how they want to sell their house. They'll tap that person on the shoulder, maybe not in COVID, but they'll tap that person on the shoulder and start up a conversation. They'll work with a pro to help uh, generate more leads and figure out how they can do that themselves. They're always, always, always willing to do so because they know that That top of the funnel prospecting is super important, and they're always doing everything they can there. Um, So that's number one. The other thing that's really, really striking and one hundred percent common across all the top agents I work with is they always do what they're going to say they're going. But they always do what they say they're going to do. It's unbelievable the number of agents who will talk to the prospect, even pay for a lead for a prospect, say great, I'll get you something, and then it falls off their to-do list, or they do it Mm -hmm. a week or two later. The top agents never, ever, ever let that happen. If they talk to the prospect who says, hey, I'd love to know a little bit more about this market, the top agents will get that prospect an email before they go to sleep that night with information. And no matter what, they will always follow up on whatever they promise they do because that's building trust. That's building trust with their buyers, it's building trust with their sellers. This agent is someone who is dependable, it's someone I can count on. And you know, it's crazy. Both of those things are not that complicated. One is put yourself out there, one is do what you say you're going to do, but all of the top agents have it in common.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. And I am also aware that top agents that I work with have a team. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have not only a team, typically of buyer's agents, and mm-hmm. then they'll take the listings, but they also mm-hmm. have admins. They have a marketing coordinator. Even though they hire me as their marketing agency, I'll work with a marketing coordinator within the brokerage because mm-hmm. we do more specialized advanced campaigns and they're more mm-hmm. of a, a general, like a general contractor as opposed to a specialist, right? And so. They have that, but then also a lot of them have a transaction coordinator or, you know, Mm -hmm. some type of person who's handling the transaction from start to finish to remove them from that process. So Mm -hmm. transaction coordination and outsourcing that as a service is another common thread that I've seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree. It's, It's crazy. We have a lot of agents come to us. We reach out to agents we think could be a good fit. And when we reach out to people, they either say, that sounds super interesting. I'd love to talk or hey i actually already have a transaction coordinator because to your point all of these top agents recognize their most valuable asset is as their time and yep. if they can focus their time on what they're best at which is for most agents working with people working with clients and and work with pros on the marketing side of things on the transaction coordination side of things it's the highest possible roi for them in their time
0: yeah no 100% so now you've gone through multiple business startups failures and then you've had a couple that have stuck i'm sure that in addition to Mm -hmm. college you've done a lot of personal development and you probably read some books along the way so -hmm. what are some of the books Mm -hmm. you know one to three books that have greatly influenced your life or career
1: yeah i'm a big reader and there's a couple that come to mind uh One that I always love recommending and is kind of outside of the norm in terms of standard books that is recommended is uh, he's called Hero of the Empire. It's about Winston Churchill when he was relatively young, from about 18 to 35. I think the author's name is Candace Millard. But what's incredible about that book and why I always recommend it is Winston Churchill was very clear from the time he was a teenager that his life goal was to be prime minister. And the book follows the first ten years of his journey in that goal of, hey, I'm a young guy, I want to be prime minister, but how do I get to that goal? And you you see his failures, which are numerous and repeated. He was even in jail for a while. And see how he never loses sight of his main goal and just is always doing everything he can to get there. Really, really interesting book and I one I always highly recommend. That would be one. The other one I always recommend is uh, the no asshole rule. It's a complete cliche. It's written by a professor out in Stanford um, business school, but uh, it it talks about how businesses that have a no asshole rule and everyone enjoys working together end up being the businesses that succeed. I think it's fantastic advice. And another common thread amongst great agents is there's someone that their fantastic team underneath them really wants to work for.
0: Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like that. You know, thinking about that today, just being on meetings and it's like, when everyone's friendly and respectful and appreciates one another's contributions, it makes for such a different team environment. I noticed that early on when I was a manager at Cutco, I was Mm -hmm. a top sales rep and then I got into management and I had already at that time worked multiple restaurant jobs, which Mm -hmm. I hated by the way. (laughs) I knew what a boss was. I understood the Mm -hmm. definition of a boss. And then when I became a successful sales rep early in my career and was then in management, I mean, I was 19 managing 18 year olds. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's not like there was much of an age barrier, but the mm-hmm. way to command that respect and not just tell them to go do this or you get fired, because that's what mm-hmm. a boss would do. I had mm-hmm. to be a manager and a leader. I had to lead by example. And I had to create a, an environment in the office where success was celebrated and mm-hmm. where negativity was also cut out and avoided. Because we used to say negative people recruit. Like <laughs> if there's if there's one person negative on the team, they're gonna try and get everyone else to to get on their side and mm-hmm. just go waste time in this corner rather than making phone calls. So really big culture, you know, that that's kind of what I think what you're getting at, the culture of like no assholes with that mm-hmm. book. Really big important part. And uh I agree. A lot of the best companies, they are enjoyable places to work. And mm-hmm. I think that also impacted you and your transaction coordinator business, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you pay them more, you create a mm-hmm. great environment because of that, they're more competent and happier. And then because of that, the clients are getting exceptional service. So yeah, that, that makes total sense.
1: You're raising great points because everyone from a business perspective looks at it immediately from a does this is this profitable does this make sense like should we spend time getting to know each other as a team spend time on the culture pay people more or should we just try to be make as much money as we can as quickly as possible and it sounds counterintuitive almost but it always emphasizing the culture is the best way to go about doing it i mean there's I've seen data, I'll try to find it, that shows there's a really strong relationship between being on the list of the 100 best places to work and having the highest performing stock price in the Uh, S&P. Because people who love working at their job work harder, stay longer, feel more comfortable with sharing that crazy idea that might end up being something phenomenal that eventually leads to that long-term success within the business.
0: Interesting. And the crowdsourcing of ideas. So do you have a story from your consulting days of a company that has incredible culture? Maybe you can't say the specific name, but just maybe a, a story with, with no name of the company of like, man, this one company did this, mm-hmm. this, this, and this, and they had such a focus on that. Like, mm-hmm. I think that would be interesting for some of the powerful brokers out there that might have 100 agents on their team or 400 agents on their team. And now they're mm-hmm. thinking in terms of scale, culture, you know, creating a reward system, um, Mm -hmm. the different things that would help to make it a fun work environment. So do you have like a, does a story come to mind?
1: Yeah, for sure. A couple of different ones come to mind. There's one company that uh, I've worked with a couple of times, actually, that is very well known. They're they're the kind of company that every 10 year old knows them. Every 10 year old knows who they are. And I was in a meeting once, it was a big meeting, it was about a workshop, 30, 40 people. And there was a, a relatively young guy, looked relatively new out of school, who was there at the meeting. And he seemed emotional. He was a little teary-eyed almost. And I, I went up to him and I asked him if he was doing okay, it was before we got started, could bring him some water or anything like that. And he literally just looked at me, he's like, I'm just so happy to be here because it was a life goal of his to always work for this company because it was this company that he heard about when he was young and then he was there and he was in the room. But the cool right. part about it and the way the culture comes in is not his boss, but his boss's boss was actually walking relatively close by behind me. I didn't see her there. Otherwise I wouldn't have asked him at that moment if he was doing okay. But she came over and she heard him. She came over and she looked at him and she goes, Joe, we're so lucky to have you. And from that moment, I had never seen somebody more dedicated and more excited and more hardworking than any person I've ever met than this guy at that company. Than because Joe. not only than Joe, then not only because he was just so happy to be there, but he felt valued for being there at the exact same time. Right. And I'm, from the boss perspective, it was, it was one line. It was all she said, but it made yep. him feel like he was part of the team.
0: Well, it comes back to recognition, which is a hugely important thing to especially millennials it's, it's kind of the same thing you, I want to like, be able to instantly pull this blog article I I read years ago and like put it in front of everyone, but to explain it basically there, it was talking about the generations and what's important to them in the workplace and Mm. that millennials, especially, which in the case of many real estate teams, the new hires are millennials, the, you Mm -hmm. know, the admins are millennials, the marketing directors are millennials, a really big thing that you need to do in addition to compensation and creating a safe work environment is recognize them. Mm. That one thing, Hey, you know what? You did a really great job on that report. That last transaction went so smoothly, whatever it is, those little one-liners I used to do recognition Tuesdays in Cutco. We would call the team and we would give a sincere compliment based on the last week's performance. And if there was really nothing to give, then we would try to come up with something just, you know, personally. Hey, you have mm. such a bright personality. Everyone's always, mm. you know, paying attention to you when you speak. Really look forward to you stepping into this role at a higher level, becoming a leader because you're going to make massive changes on this team for the better. And, you know, just really trying to like sincerely compliment people. Mm. It's another one of those intangible things that you can't exactly quantify, but it's like mm-hmm. you said, Joe's productivity then went through the roof because mm-hmm. now he's not just working for a dollar. This company means everything to him
1: that's a great idea I love that of recognition Tuesdays that's brilliant and you know if you think about it from the real estate end, you're totally right on the millennial side of things the other really big thing about real estate that, that every agent knows is the success rate for agents in the first couple of years is tough it's really tough to to build that first uh, relationship with clients, it's really tough to get that first house under contract, whether you're with the buyers or the sellers. And if you're if you're a managing broker, leading a team, giving the words of encouragement to to keep your team pushing, especially when they're first starting off, really moves and means a lot because it is tough. It's a really tough industry. There's a st- that stat that's been going around the past couple of weeks about how there's more licensed agents in the country right now than there are houses for sale. It's a tough market out there right now.
0: Right. That is a crazy stat. I haven't heard that one. I knew inventory was low, but wow. I know that a lot of our top agents out there, they aren't worried about having 30,000 agents in their city because Mm -hmm. they know the 200 that are actually doing the transactions and they're one of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I know that that's the case for a lot of my clients, but that is definitely a crazy stat. There are more people with licenses than there (laughs) are houses for sale in the US. Wow. I do have a question about, you know, any apparent failures from the past. Like, do you have mm. a favorite failure of yours that then turned into later success or something that you learned from that apparent failure in the moment ended up being a blessing, in disguise later? Does anything come to mind when I say that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The best example that comes to mind actually would be a real estate purchase. My my now wife and I bought an investment property, sight unseen. We'd never seen it before. It was a multifamily property. There's a lot of things that we didn't do great on this particular deal. Um, we had never seen it before. We were actually still dating. We weren't even engaged at the time. So that was probably relatively risky getting into a, a partnership together to buy the property. And the biggest problem, though, with everything that went wrong with this deal, which we could spend the, the entire hour talking about what went wrong with this deal, was we didn't do a great job of vetting property management and mm. we we worked with a property manager. We signed on with them for the initial year. We had talked with two or three people in the town. We honestly liked the lady that we had talked to most at this particular firm. So we said, sure, great. We'll go with her. And we took over this property. It was a seven unit and we had two paying tenants for about nine months. And they had a couple squatters that they couldn't get rid of. They absolutely struggled to get the property rented. They cut the rental price that they were asking without telling us as well by about 25% and it just, nothing could possibly, possibly happen things have changed we ended up figuring out a way to get out of that contract with that property management company about 9 months into it we're working with a different property manager now for that unit building he actually got all the units rented in about a week and a half so it was a pretty quick turnaround oh and at the price that they should have been not the discounted
0: price wow
1: but it was it, it was a really really strong lesson especially on our first investment deal if you're going to make an investment and put the, your entire investment in the hands of a property manager make sure to vet the property manager just as much as you vet the uh, actual Investment
0: itself. Wow. That's very interesting. And, you know, for those that are interested in multifamily investment and that mm-hmm. then would potentially just be kind of inheriting a property manager from the previous owner, mm-hmm. hey, here's who's managing the property. You know, you can use them or not. It's easy to just say, okay, yeah, sure. But now knowing what you know, how would you vet a property manager? What metrics are you looking at? What's the process for vetting them?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. So now there's there's two things that we care about and we do now that are really telling. So the first one that we do is if the property is already being managed by a manager, we will keep an eye on that property as we're as we're thinking about buying it. If we see a vacancy, we're gonna call on that vacancy as prospective tenants ourselves. We're gonna go, hey, I'm Sean. Would love to know more about renting apartment one at one two three Main Street, and we'll see what happens. Will they follow up and do what they say that they're going to do and send a lease later that day or a rental application later that day for me to um, fill out? Are they going to try to close me on that phone? Are they going to try to get me out there to show the property? If they're doing all those things, I'm going to feel really confident that they, like any agent, are going to be focused on customer service and they're going to get somebody in to fill those, those empty units when they show up. The other thing that we always do is a standard question everybody asks a property manager is, what's your occupancy? And they'll say, "Oh, I've got four hundred units under management and I'm ninety six percent occupied or ninety three percent occupied or something like that. But what they aren't telling you is that four, five, six, seven percent that's not occupied is how long they've been unoccupied. And if there's something that, for whatever reason, the, the property manager doesn't like that building, it's not as profitable for them, they don't focus on it, whatever it may be, those units might be sitting vacant for a very long time where they're really quickly filling up the units over there. So the metric we ask about is not what's your occupancy, but what is your average length of vacancy? Because if they have a unit that's sitting vacant for six months, it's going to blow that average vacancy length way up. And it'll be really telling if the average vacancy is three or four days compared to three or four months.
0: Yes. Wow. That is really insightful. I read in a book that working with property managers, especially for out-of-state investments, is one of the best ways to vet investments. So if you first find the best property management company in the city, They're going to know what can rent for what. They'll have a Mm -hmm. finger on the pulse for all kinds of different things. So you could develop a relationship with them even prior to the purchase. And those are some incredible questions to ask if that were the case. I know that a couple episodes ago, I interviewed a, um, he was kind of an expert in a lot of different things, but he's, you know, a single family agent that had gone to multifamily. And he talked about the tax benefit of Mm -hmm. a real estate agent specifically who mm. has a real estate business doing transactions on the residential side and mm. then has you know at least one multifamily commercial real estate investment and the ability to write off $60,000 in taxes and, and depreciation for that year and you could do one purchase per year. Mm. That's massive, right? And so then for anyone out there, any top agents thinking of diversifying your portfolio, going commercial, doing multifamily, well, mm. these questions, that Sean just brought up about working with property management companies in other states, that would be key to ask. I know that I'm gonna add that to my list, right? The average days, it's kind of like average days on market. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. average days or average time of unoccupancy. That's, that's really good. So is there anything that I should have asked you or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, something that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier?
1: Great question. Honestly, that's a great question for agents to ask. There's a couple agents that we've worked with who've actually asked us that exact question. And it's been a reason we've worked with some versus others because they've asked us those sorts of follow up questions. I guess the only thing I would add is we we talked about some some of the key differentiators for what makes some agents really succeed and the commonalities amongst top agents. One other that I'd throw out there, and this is true just in business in general, and I've seen a lot in the consulting side of things as well, is the persistence of your follow-ups. I know different brokerages teach different things about how often to touch your database, but the reality and what we've seen in the transaction coordination business at Close Concierge and in uh, consulting in general is the agents who follow up, the people I work with in consulting who follow up uh, and just stay in touch are the ones that end up succeeding and doing really well. I know, for example, that's the thing at McKinsey. Every time that McKinsey sells a five, 10, 15, $20 million project, every single year, the partner who sold that project is going to be following back up with the person who wrote that $10 million check, just to say hi, keep in touch and and share some insight about what they're seeing, but so they can make sure to keep in touch from a sales perspective as well. So just one other thing I guess I'd throw out regarding commonalities amongst top agents.
0: Interesting. Yeah. The frequency and persistence, relentlessness of Mm follow-up. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Well, Sean, how can listeners contact you?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I am on uh, uh, Sean O'Dowd. Um, I'm at Sean at CloseConcierge.com. Feel free to email me at any point. Um, I'm also fairly active on Twitter talking about real estate, real estate investing, and, and Close Concierge as well. Uh, I think it's at Sean O'Dowd 15.
0: Okay. So Sean O'Dowd and the first one was LinkedIn? Is that what it was? or
1: uh, The first one was just my email. I'm Sean at CloseConcierge.com.
0: Yeah, the the connection got interrupted there for just a second. So uh, apologies. No worries. Close concierge. Well, Sean O'Dowd, everyone, a young, savvy investor, consultant, turned transaction coordinator, company owner, and uh, he was here to share with you today some secrets of the top 1%. And my biggest takeaway was focusing on income-producing activities and outsourcing the rest. That's kind of the overall theme, I think, of this podcast is like, if you aren't talking to a client, then you shouldn't be doing it, right? Income producing activities, that's what you need to be doing 24-7 to be a top agent and putting people, services, products in the place of everything else that needs to get done. So, thanks so much for being on, Sean. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.